Welcome back to the next session. And what I'm going to do in the next uh, couple of sessions is really give you a, a sort of a, a cross-section of little bits on different little bits of topics. And the reason for that is because um, if you read Islamic literature, you'll find that when you read through, say, Sahih Bukhari, uh, that's the Saints of Muhammad, when you read through his biography even, you'll find that there's all sorts of stories. And it, it goes from one idea to another idea, um, and then another one, and then another one. And there's also of little topics uh, weaved in and out of the stories of Islam. And so sometimes there's these ideas that we need to address, but doesn't necessarily take a, a whole lot of time to address them. So the next, uh, uh, the next couple of sessions will sort of be potpourries, if you like, or little, little bits and pieces of information that will hopefully be useful to you, um, quotes and, and ideas and, and different ideas to be able to uh, communicate with your Muslim friends. What I'm going to do now is I'm just going to uh, do a tiny bit of a review, but also add more new information. And we're going to uh, uh, just present... Um, a, a topic after topic after topic uh, that you can even use with Muslims and then um, show them the verses and then help them to think through their own ideas. Let's go back to um, a, a number of quotes that I quoted in an earlier session when we looked at Muhammad. I want to look at Muhammad's example, uh, Muhammad's example, and I want to look and see what the Quran says, um, how we, we as human beings are supposed to look at Muhammad. This is a, one of the best places to start when you are talking with Muslims. I find that um, with, if you can ground everything you say and, and ground it on this book, if you can start with this book and you can show that everything you say and, and the reasons you say what you say come from this book, it can be very helpful. And this is a good starting point, the next few quotes, which I have referenced earlier on in other sessions, but I want to reintroduce them again. So it's Surah 480, where it says, he who obeys the messenger has indeed obeyed Allah. Allah. All sorts of theologies you could unpack with that particular statement. Um, Surah 53.3, nor does he speak from his own desire, it is only a revelation revealed. Surah 47.33, and Allah said, O you who believe, obey Allah and obey the messenger. Again, just equating Muhammad with this, with this Allah. Uh, just as an, as an aside, nothing to do with women or men in Islam. But just from a theological perspective, from a Christian perspective, one of the things that I have found very helpful when I talk with Muslims is to read these verses. So I take, for example, he who obeys the messenger has indeed obeyed Allah. And I show my Muslim friend how for a Christian, this is, this is awful. This is heinous. Why is this so awful? Because as a Christian, I would never dream of taking just a mere man and saying that you obey the man like you obey Allah. What I'm, I'm doing a couple of things there when I do this. I'm showing my Muslim friend that, first of all, I would never take a, a mere man, make it God. And that what that's doing is challenging their false idea of how I view the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Quran says that um, we have taken Jesus and we have taken a mere man and we have made him into a God. Or we have equated partners with, with Allah. That's what the Quran says. It's a misunderstanding completely of the Christian message and of, of what the Bible teaches. So what I'm doing here is I'm flipping, first of all, their, their misconceptions of the Bible onto its head, but I'm also um, challenging the Quran. You see, I'm challenging the fact that they think that I took a mere man and equated him with God, but hang on a minute, isn't that what the Quran has just done? 
that you have to obey a mere man as well as Allah. O you who believe, obey Allah and the Messenger. In the Messenger of Allah, you have a good example to follow. And then, of course, Muhammad is exalted in character, Surah 68, verse 4. Isn't it the Quran has taken a mere man and made him like God? Help Muslims see the blasphemy within their own text, within their own theology, and help them see that has nothing to do with the biblical text. We don't just take a mere man and make him God. We have the God who always came to us. That's the difference. And it's a great way to help Muslims work that through and throw their own theology and misconceptions on its head. So we start with Muhammad's example. So what I'm going to do now, some of it will be a bit of revision, but we'll also add more. Um, we're going to look at some of the things we've covered and then just sort of have a quick snapshot of, of um, themes and ideas and topics that you can present to a Muslim friend. So first of all, do you remember when we talked about what your right hand possesses? Surah 4.3, Surah 4, 24 to 25, 23 verse, Surah 23 verse 6, Surah 24 verse 34, Surah 70 verse 30, Surah 33 verse 50, Surah 3352, it goes on and on and on, where it talks about what your right hand possesses, the woman that you own, the woman that belongs to you. And of course, it's in the context of slavery and and she is completely under um, uh, submission and obedience to you. So we have, um, you can have uh, Muhammad and his men and Muslims, Muslim men, only Muslim men, uh, whilst it, they say that you should treat women equally, you cannot because, of course, there's always the exception to the rule. It's the get out clause. What your right hand possesses. Folks, just go through those verses that I've just, just given you and open them up and help your Muslim friend read them through and let the Quran challenge his own ideas. Let the Quran uh, uh, or be exposed in his own mind or her own mind and help them to see how, how wicked this is in the sight of God. Um, you can use Isaiah 61, uh, the, the, the sermon that Jesus quoted in the New Testament, when he, the first sermon he ever gave, and, and, and Luke talks about it, where he's, he reads Isaiah 61, where he's come to set the prisoners free. <laughs> and then Jesus says, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. He came to set the prisoners free. That's what his message is. It's spiritual, but it also plays out in the physical realm as well. Islam is the opposite. Jesus came to set the, the slave and prisoner free. Muhammad came to enslave and put the free under slavery. That's the difference between these two men. And certainly when it comes to women, that's the difference. Jesus came to show women that they were valuable as well as men, that they were valuable, they were equal in sight of God, that he died for them. Men and women were in his discipleship groups as he traveled around, men and women traveled with him. Some of the first evangelists to the world were women. And um, women, God used women to be very key in the early church and to be the people who went out and prophesied about him and so on. But with Islam, women were always in this, as we said earlier in another session, in the family. Women were always the wife, always the one that was taken by the Muslim men. That's how Muhammad and his friends always talked about women. It was always discussing whether they could have this woman or that woman and sharing the women between them. Um, selling them and trading them and so on. So it's a very different whole view and concept of how, how it all worked. I would never want to be a woman when, uh, it, when Muhammad and his companions came. So why not do a comparison between Muhammad and his companions and then how they interacted with women and then Jesus and his disciples and how they interacted with women. Now, the disciples were not always uh, right or righteous in how they have engaged with not only women but other men as well and even children. But what about Jesus? 
Jesus show how Jesus doesn't always affirm the way the disciples treated women. Muhammad keeps affirming the way his disciples treated women. Uh, and it's quite troubling how his, his followers, his disciples treated women. Then we saw in Surah 434 where Muhammad can treat wives as he wishes. He can postpone those whom he wills. So women were offering themselves to him. He can take on, but he can postpone who he wills as well. So he can take new wives and then the wives he does have, he can take on which one he wants to be with a bit longer and postpone those that he doesn't. And it seems that Allah just keeps giving him these convenient revelations and a very important but I think helpful study to do is just get a list of Muhammad's convenient revelations. Uh, In fact, you could probably go on the internet and find lists of Muhammad's convenient revelations. He kept getting revelations from his God to help him in his desires, often carnal desire, to help him to rule supreme, to help um, give him the power that he needed and to uh, excuse him actually um, from, uh, from sin, to allow him to do sin. Often those convenient revelations from Allah helped him do sin. And my question is, why would a righteous God do that? It shows that Muhammad's God cannot be the righteous God of the universe. It's a wonderful study to do, and I would encourage you to do that um, with your your Muslim friends and, and help them see not only what Muhammad was like, but what Allah is like. And then, of course, Surah 434, righteous women are devoutly obedient um, and, and so on. Uh, we've, we've looked at that before. But what I want to look at is um, here is a, a hadith. This is a saying of Muhammad from Dawood, book, uh, uh, book 11. And let me read this to you. So it's narrated by Qais ibn Sa'ad. And this is what they say. I went to Al-Hira and I saw them bowing down before they saw them bowing down. The apostle of Allah Um, has the most right to have uh, prostration done to him, says this person. When I came to the prophet, I said, I went to Al-Hijra and I saw them bowing down before um, the satraps of theirs. But you have the most right, O apostles Allah, for people to bow down to you. He said, tell me, if you were to pass by my grave, would you bow down yourself before it? I said, no. He said, do not do so. If I were to command anyone to make a prostration before anyone else, so this is Muhammad speaking, if I were to make anyone bow down before anyone else, I would command women to prostrate themselves before their husbands. I would command women to bow down before their husbands because of the special right Oh, given over them to given to husbands by Allah, the special right that Allah has given to husbands. That's in the one of the hadith of Muhammad. So again, there's this idea that um, Muhammad seems to affirm this utter control that the Quran seems to imply in Surah 434, this utter control of a man over his woman. And it's very, very different from um, what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. We looked at how women were taken as loot, a Jiraira, Safia, won't go into those details now, but uh, terribly, terribly sad. And, and again, I want to emphasize the bit on where the women, for example, um, when, when uh, Dia wanted Safia, 
Muhammad saw her instead when they'd gone in, they'd taken these women as, as captives. Muhammad chose her for himself in uh, Sahih in Al-Tabari, which is the history of Islam in volume 8, and then swapped her uh, with two cousins and gave the two cousins Judea and took Safiya for himself. And then when it says this, the women were distributed among the men of Khyber. Uh, the, among the, uh, the, the women of Khyber, excuse me, were distributed among the Muslims. What kind of man is this? It, all of what you find and how Muhammad behaved, the, 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 the seeds of it are in here. It's, it begins to be implied here. Then it's expanded upon in much more detail in the histories, in the hadith, in the biography of Muhammad. Also, we just touched upon how when you look at a, a Muslim, you see how a woman uh, or a man, for that matter, uh, is not truly given emancipation. Emancipation means total freedom. You're given your freedom. You are set free, which is what when the Christians were rising up and were trying to stop uh, slavery in the in the transatlantic slavery trade that we had in, trade in we had in the West. Um, it was the Christians that stood up because of their their conviction that Jesus has come to set us free. But with Islam, it is so different. Al-Waqidi says this. He proposed marriage to Safiya. This is Al-Waqidi, page 348. Al-Waqidi is the one who wrote uh, the the Maghazi, the raider, uh, the raids. Uh, He is one of the biographers of Muhammad. He says, if you choose God and his messenger, I will take you for myself, says Muhammad. She replied, I will choose God and his messenger. He manumated her and then he married her. And her bride price was her freedom. This happened over and over and over again in, in, among Muhammad's, uh, uh, Muhammad's uh, men and himself, where they did, were, the people were not given true freedom. The women were only manumated. They were only given um, a little bit more freedom, not total freedom, but just a little bit. But they had to convert to Islam. And then the freedom meant they were married. That's what it meant. It didn't mean total freedom. So uh, again, troubling when you read between the lines. The other interesting thing is, here, where it says, uh, where it says, Safiya chose Islam. There's, there's all sorts of details that are left out in the traditions, as if it's trying to romanticize the story and not show how cruel these stories are. Always read be- between the lines. And when a Muslim friend reads the biographies of Muhammad, help them to see what it's really saying. That it's very, very troubling if it were to apply personally to them. So then we know that there's a very troubling story of what Muhammad did um, to slave girls. So you have uh, the Muhammad's wives, and then the Muhammad's wives also had slave girls. There was a, 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 a little slave girl called Maria, Maria the Coptic. She was a Christian girl. She was a slave girl from, uh, from Egypt. She possibly was given um, as a trade or given as a gift uh, from someone in Egypt, uh, the governor of Egypt. She was a beautiful Copt, Copt. And it's a very, very sad story. Muhammad goes to um, to uh, sleep with his wife Hafsa. It was her turn in the day. He went to sleep with his wife Hafsa. She wasn't there. Unfortunately for the little um, teenager Coptic girl, she was there. And so because Hafsa wasn't there, Muhammad slept with her instead. The slave girl got jealous. Aisha um, and uh, Aisha got and Hafsa got very very um, got. Uh, the slave girl got pregnant. Aisha and Hafsa got very jealous of the slave girl for obvious reasons. 
And there was a very sad story. Maria lost the baby after she got pregnant. She lost that baby. And then um, there's, then there's a whole Hadith stories and Sira stories of, how, uh, of, of, of the interactions of how Muhammad and his wives were totally upset with him. Then in the Surah, in the Quran, God gives Muhammad, Surah 66 verse 5, Apparently, Allah gives Muhammad a, a, a convenient revelation and he, uh, he, he, he threatens the wives of Muhammad. And, uh, and in the hadith, it's Hafsa and Aisha. He threatens them and he basically says, and I'm paraphrasing here, if they don't toe the line, if they don't come into submission, if they don't begin to obey Muhammad, Allah will replace them with better wives than their maidens and virgins and, and, um, divorced, uh, and divorced women. So the Allah, the God of Islam from heaven, um, threatens the wives of Muhammad because the wives of Muhammad would, were upset with what Muhammad had done by sleeping with the Coptic girl when he should have waited for his wife Hafsa. And because the wives were legitimately upset, Allah helps Muhammad to keep them um, to, to keep them under submission and in obedience to him. Do you see how manipulative these Islamic texts are? Help the Muslims see how manipulative, how God uses... Um, Allah, Muhammad uses Allah for his own gain. How Allah seems to keep helping Muhammad with these very sinful desires that he did. But worse than that, and this is the elephant in the room, that little Coptic girl, by modern day standards, was horrendously raped by the founder of Islam. That is what happened. Now, you may not be able to use that terminology. In fact, in the United Kingdom, we train um, those that we teach in our, on our online course, we train them not to use words like Muhammad was a pedophile, even though by modern stage, day standards, he slept with a nine-year-old, which would be called a pedophile in this day and age. Um, we, we say to people, maybe don't use the word actually rape, be a bit careful with that. I mean, you can do, but you might want to be careful with that. What you can do is you don't have to even use that terminology. You just have to open up. You have to say, what has this man done to this woman? Help the Muslim friend come to the conclusion of what he's done. In fact, she's a girl. She's a teenager. What did Muhammad do that teenager? And when you read the sources of Islam, this is Al-Tabari has this source, Ibn Hisham has this, so, has this story uh, on page 653, uh, all of, and modern day literature has this story, and the modern day literature glosses over the whole story. But when you read it according to its actual uh, older traditions, it's so troubling, it's so disturbing. And it just reads as if this is okay to do because he's the prophet of all time. Help Muslims to see how, how wicked this behavior is of this prophet. Because I tell you, Muslims are coming to Christ. Again, a little aside. When you are sharing your faith with Muslims on our team back in London, we are finding that um, Muslims are coming to Christ um, through critiquing questions of the Quran. We are showing how the Quran is not perfect. The Quran is very man-made and we've got the proof for it and we can show the Muslim the evidence for it. And Muslims are coming to, um, to Christianity because of it. They're leaving Islam, coming to Christianity. Women, and this is what we're finding in the United Kingdom, one of my colleagues who's led many, many Muslims to the Lord, she says, what's bringing the women through is Muhammad. Muhammad is bringing the women through or out of Islam into Christianity. But where we as Christians, what our role, our remit is to go into Muslim homes and to our Muslim friends around the world. And we must show 
what who Muhammad is, especially how he treated women. We must show what this man really did, especially to his wives. And I tell you, Muslims are leaving Islam because of these stories, because Muslims have never read these stories. Muslims don't know these stories exist. And the only versions, if they have read them, the only versions they've read are the romanticized stories that we have floating around in Islamic propaganda that you find in the mosques and so on. So expose Islam to the Muslims themselves using their own traditions, their own stories. We have very devastating stories of, um, in the traditions of Islam. This is one from Al-Waqidi uh, on page 383. Some really uh, troubling stories there. There's a story of a girl. They call her a gazelle. She looked like a gazelle. She was beautiful. It's on the expedition um, to Khadira, and, and they're coming into Muhammad and his men are raiders. They're coming into the tribes. They're raiding the local tribes. And there's this girl running, and they say she was like a gazelle. She was beautiful, and she was looking behind her, and she was, she, she was getting upset as she looked behind her. And um, it says that they killed all those who came at them to defend, of course, their, 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 their villages and their women and their belongings. They killed them, which is the men. Then we drove the cattle and carried the women. And they had their swords hanging by their side of their, of their saddles, of their horses. And then there's one man is telling the story of the raid that the Muslim men had made, Muhammad's followers had made. In the morning, as my camel lay smeared, this is with blood, I met a woman like a gazelle. She increasingly looked behind her crying. I said, what are you looking for? And she's running at this point. And she said, by God, I seek the man who, if he were alive, would surely recover. He would rescue us from you. You see her fear. I realized that it was the man that I had killed. I said, surely I killed him. The sword that hangs by the saddle uh, on my saddle um, is from him. She, he, the, it had blood on it and it was out of saddle. And then it says, she cried and became resigned. And that's all it says. She cried and became resigned. You just see the troubling stories. This is Muhammad's men. This is Muhammad taking his men into, into battle. Uh, then, again, there's, there's, uh, there's tension between um, which woman would have, who would get what woman. And the men are debating among each other. Al-Waqidi, further on in the story, they're debating about which woman would, have, uh, which woman would be given to which man. And Muhammad chose the more, more beautiful. But then you have other stories. Um, for example, if you take um, Ibn Hisham, that's the other biography, the more authoritative biography, the earlier biography. So you have Ibn Hisham and then you have Al-Waqidi. And in Ibn Hisham, uh, he talks about how Muhammad sold women for horses. So he traded, he, he traded horses and, and, and weapons and swapped them with women. So women were just a commodity to Muhammad. Women were someone you could enslave the woman and then you could trade them for horses and weapons. Again, what does this say about women? What does this say about Muhammad? Let me read another story. This is from Sahih Muslim, book 19. The messenger of Allah sent the young captured woman to the people of Mecca and surrendered her as ransom for a number of Muslims who had been kept prisoner, uh, kept as prisoners of Mecca. So a woman is sent to pay uh, for the release of these people that have been kept as prisoners. So she's just a commodity to be swapped, sold and, and for payment. 
Then Muhammad gives, he takes female slaves and he gives them, he, he gives them as gifts to his friends. We have this in the history of Tabari in volume 8. And, and it says, from his share of captive women, Prophet Muhammad gave his son-in-law a slave girl uh, to enjoy at his will. What is this saying? To enjoy at his will. He also presented Uthman, his son, his son, another son-in-law, another slave girl called Zainab, and then bestowed another girl, and his name is unknown, to his father-in-law. Do you see what he's doing? He's got his family, he's got his sons, he's got his father-in-law, and he's taking the be- most beautiful women and he's giving them as gifts um, as, he, as he'd raided these villages and taken the women as captives and slaves. A fifth of the booty was usually reserved for Muhammad, and, um, and what happened was um, he gave one of these women to his uncle and then the uncle gave it to his son. So the women are just getting swapped and, and, and swapped around and shared um, among the men. It's a terrible thing for a Muslim woman, a woman, full stop, not a Muslim woman, for a woman to be caught up in war with, with Islam. Uh, and what you see happening with ISIS, so many people say, well, what happened with the Yazidi women and probably a few Christians and Shia women in there? What happened with those women, the terrible slavery that's happening under ISIS and in recent years? They say it's nothing to do with Islam. It is everything to do with Islam. It is everything that Muhammad taught. He not only taught it, he practiced it. It's in his biographies, it's in his sayings, and it's inferred in the Quran when it talks about what your right hand possesses. It's right through Islamic literature. And it's not just once. It's all the way through. In fact, when you read Islamic law, some of which most Muslims say is relevant for today, when you read Islamic law, they spend quite a bit of time on slavery, and it's always slavery of woman. Then there's a really troubling verse um, talking about how they've seen the captives, they killed the men, they took the captives um, uh, um, for themselves. And then um, it talks about how uh, um, they, they, they saw that some of the captives were married. What do we do that these captives are married? And so it then says, and this, do you remember when we were talking about an earlier talk about the Asbab al-Nazul, the context of revelation? It says, an Asbab al-Nazul, a context of revelation was sent down, uh, or a verse was sent down, so this is the context, a verse was sent down, and, um, and it's the verse that talks about what your right hand possesses, all married women are forbidden for you except what your right hand possesses, Surah 4, 24. So again, the, 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 the reason apparently of why the Surah 424 was revealed, um, that they could take uh, already married slave girls, is because they were capturing married women. And these were non-Muslim women. So those of us who are not Muslims, if we ever come into uh, get under, under the power of Islam, they legitimately can take us even if we're married. It's very, very serious. You need to work it through with your Muslim friend. Now, I'm going to wrap up again with a slightly troubling trend that we see happen right through the life of Muhammad, as well as um, now happens today across the Muslim world, across the Sunni and also the Shia world. This is called muta and misya marriage. Muta marriage is what was practiced by Muhammad and, and his men. Muta marriage is temporary marriage. They would go in, they would get a woman, and you could marry her for a few hours, um, all the way up to however many years. So it was a temporary marriage. And the reason given for it is because the men found it hard to be celibate when they were away from their wives who they'd left at home during the times of war. This is according to Islamic tradition. 
In um, today, Muta marriage is practiced through the uh, Shia Islamic world and Misia marriage, which is a very similar concept where you have women attached to mosques. And when a man, a Muslim man is traveling anywhere in the Muslim world, he can go to a mosque and he can marry one of these women. And then all he has to do is divorce her by saying talak three times and then he, she is divorced. It's legalized prostitution. And it comes straight out of um, uh, Bukhari, Volume 7, Book 62. It says, we used to participate in the holy battles led by Allah's apostle. We had not, no wives with us. So we, 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 we were, they didn't know what to do. And so they said, shall we get ourselves castrated? Well, Muhammad forbade them. And then, he, and then he allowed us to marry women with a temporary contract. And again, um, apparently this is when the verse Surah 587 was revealed. Oh, you who believe, make not unlawful the good things which Allah has made lawful for you, but commit no transgression. So on that slightly disturbing note, we're going to end. But I want to end with this, um, this, uh, uh, this thought. This is Allah bringing about another convenient revelation, apparently, to Muhammad and his men to not only allow them to feed their own whims and their own desires, but to treat women so inhumanely that even the married women and the, and the, and the, the women that they captured would be taken by them. And in modern day terms, that is rape. It is a very serious thing what this religion has done to women. We need to expose it. And if we love Muslims, we need to help our Muslims see what this religion really has done to the women of the world. And we need to bring them back to this book and show what this book one does wonderful things for the women of the world.